Welcome to Build the Invisible, a podcast hosted by me, Daniel G, where we explore career journeys of today's most successful professionals. Each week, we sit down with guests to discuss the challenges they faced and the lessons that they've learned along the way, from dealing with failure to the importance of being patient and listening to others. We uncover the strategies and mindset that have helped our guests build successful careers. Join us as we delve into the stories of those who have persevered and achieved greatness in their fields. I had the pleasure of speaking with Simon Dent. Simon graduated from University of Kent in 1997 with a law degree. He spent his early years working as a solicitor in London and after a chance encounter in 2002, Simon fell into the world of nightclub promoting, spending five years organising parties for some of the biggest celebrities and sports personalities in the world. In 2007, Simon left the promotional business that he helped build. He then spent the next 13 years building three businesses with his passion for sport at the heart of each one. People want to, are really interested in the general space that we're in yeah. as it goes. And I will always be in that person, if I can do, to respond to people of that when they say, you know, how do I become a football agent or a sports lawyer? Or, you know, how do I become a marketing agent inside, you know, the music business or fashion or film or TV? The, you know, the, the general passion, entertainment sectors, whatever you want to call them generally. And it sort of st- struck a chord when I did, I did like a, a just when lockdown started, I did a... Um, a YouTube course on a career in sport or a career in football. And the response was really, really great, which was like people were just engaged in, um, you know, some of the things and quite basic things that I was saying that I thought were basic to me, but weren't necessarily basic to others, not demeaning anyone else's understanding of what was going on. And so I just actually thought, well, why, why not just use that, those videos as the basis for, you know, slightly maybe larger or longer essays about, um, you know, stuff that either I learned along the way, things that happened which weren't that pleasant at the time, but made, made me understand myself and circumstances better. Yeah. But also like when people ask, well, what's the magic formula or what's, you know, the, the silver bullet or, or those type of things. And the, the, there was no easy answer because actually there's a very straightforward answer. Maybe that's my first question to you now, which was, um, you know, everyone goes, well, you know, um, how do you develop your network or, or the, actually my answer sometimes to the questions is develop your knowledge and develop your network but the question usually is well how did you go about getting into the industry and my view mm. lovely in your view which is it was so incremental it was unbelievable in my perspective we, we started ours as lawyers together mm. um, at slightly different times um, I'm still there but obviously doing these types of things as side hustles and I would have ended up doing what you're doing if I was allowed basically I'm convinced of that. And I've said that to Andrew that I think you, you, I, yeah, if I'd been at the right, the, the right firm at the right time, I may have stayed in the legal profession. But anyway, that's a different, that's a different book. Well, it's a, it's a great, so maybe it's a great one to start because actually the thing that I, I really like about the autonomy that I'm given or the autonomy that I create for myself, whichever way around it is, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't want to just be a nine to five lawyer drafting legal documents. I, I, I want to see myself as someone, you know, a little bit more rounded than that in terms of my relationships with the guys in the office, with my clients, with the stuff that I want to do. And law gives me my grounding, but it also gives me my opportunity to be able to do lots of other things and mm. to network and to speak to people like you. So 
you know, when, when, for example, you went from law to mm. the more creative aspects of your, of your world and your job, um, you know, what, what, was, what was your thinking at the time? Was it always, you know, now that I'm not a lawyer and maybe labeled as a lawyer, what was your thought process of going, you know, I'm going to do something so quite different to, you know, um, three years undergrad, you know, yeah. law school, two years yeah. worth of ridiculously hard work mm. and, and sort of leave that behind? To, to yeah. I think that for me, it was um, that realisation that you'd often hear banded about that I wanted to work in something that I enjoyed and because I'd had the privilege of being able to have, you know, six or seven years of Leeds education and practice, I was acutely aware that bolting that onto a passion would be quite useful. And from, yeah, from, from, from that, the moment I left law, it was about, right, how do I find my way into sport? I think the other thing which is, is, really relevant was I was blessed at the time with a bit of patience I knew like you read about it now and a lot of people talking about the long game I don't know where it came from because I'm not actually a particularly patient person <laughs> but I, I appreciated that you know I guess from what I was then probably 25 26 26 27 I knew that you know most people work to 65 and so I was actually I think the moment I took away that rush I think I could start making correct decisions so I wasn't chasing being the sport big sports agent or owner of creative agency I actually looked at it and thought, right, okay, this year, this is what I'm going to do. And, and then that's how I approached it. I approached it in, again, use the word incremental. Early on, I really appreciated just getting the incremental wins and then done up, you know, over a long period of time, that would build up to something significant. And tell if if you if you if you feel you know you're able to and willing to I I listened it's, it's still I think probably one of my favourite podcasts um, that you did I think was it with Mark Whittle oh yeah the Take Flight podcast yeah Take Flight podcast where you're talking about your experiences towards the end of um, um, your law job which to be honest I think if if I was being brutally honest and a lot of lawyers were being brutally honest. It would probably say that they had those types of experiences at different times, but maybe was, weren't brave enough as you to actually um, decide that um, the law wasn't for you at certain times. You know, obviously everyone's on that type of spectrum. Yeah. If, if you could just spend a couple of minutes taking us back to that and then forwarding on to, um, um, you know, that change and that, how that transition happened, because it's yeah, incredibly powerful, I think. Yeah, I mean, when, when I, I really enjoyed studying law, and um, and what I found was when I went into practice, the um, in my experience, and I, I, I always want to add this, this is very much my personal experience, and everyone would have a very different experience in the legal profession. It's not a bad profession. Um, I, I found that very shortly after going into practice, the when it became about billable hours, um, 
that this started to add a, a whole layer of anxiety on on top of you know an already anxious young man living in London, and I think as well it was it was really important to, to sort of stress that I, I when choosing to to become a lawyer probably age because I actually did law A level as well so probably sixteen is that I don't know but I was on a path quite early. Um, I always had this misconception, probably from watching too much Ali McBeal or LA, LA Law, that you know being a lawyer was incredibly well paid and incredibly cool, and would have loads of time in the evenings to go to fancy bars and and uh, very quickly, I think when I got to qualification, um, it sort of started to dawn on me that actually this is not the end; this is just the beginning. And actually, going into a new firm to the one that I actually qualified at. Um, being at the bottom of the rung, it was an incredibly anxious experience for me. And I found that something, and even to this day that, you know, I, I'm not ashamed of it because I do think it is a skill. One of my biggest skills has always been um, dealing with people. I, I, I think I'm a people person. I, I enjoy, I really enjoy socializing. I really enjoy networking. I really enjoy joining the dots. What I found was as a young, newly qualified solicitor, I was getting nowhere near that action. I was in the back of a room, at the back of the firm, working on documents, printing all night, um, binding documents. And it was kind of not what I expected. And then that slowly evolved into being brought into um, various pieces of a piece of, a various, um, a, a cog in a massive wheel where I had no context as to what I was actually doing in the grand scheme of things but I was doing a little thing in this big case, for example, or matter. But I, I, wasn't, I wasn't briefed either end of what was going, what had come before, what happened after. And so that in itself is adding anxiety because you just, I just didn't really know what I was doing. And, um, and yeah, I think that combined with, you know, I was working at a very good time, a very good firm. And unfortunately, you know, I wasn't, you know, Oxbridge, I wasn't from a top university. I was from a good university, University of Kent, great time, great uni, but, it wasn't a respected, you know, law degree as such. So there are all these anxieties just building, building, building. And so, which led to whenever making one, what actually was a trivial mistake, all compounded and actually, you know, started to really get me down. And it was that sort of process and that slippery slope where um, I just, it made me feel incredibly insecure being in that environment. And so... Um, if I may just pivot slightly, because you, you talked there and one of the one of the things I think that um, I'm going to stop talking just as much because I want to hear more from you. One of the things that um, you mentioned there is uh, your enjoyment for networking and uh, interaction, for, for example. And um, w one of the things in the, the, the book that I'm trying to write at the moment is all about, you know, trying to explain to people the power of your invisible network that, you know, you're only sometimes as good as your, your network, but a lot of the time um, people I think mistake the power of your network as the power of being able to ask for something rather than receive um, or rather receive in terms of what can you provide for someone else rather than what they can provide for you in that sort of quid pro quo. Um, over the years, we'd just be interested in your insights as to how, how you went about either ad hoc or very strategically or habitually, you know, developing that network mm. and how you went to, uh, how, how you, how you joined those dots and 
made that process obviously quite an enjoyable one for you. Yeah, I think you know that uh, you know after legal profession, I actually had a, a couple of other careers or businesses that uh, they're not careers, they're businesses that um, were very entrepreneurial. So one, I opened a sports memorabilia gallery in Covent Garden, which was my first foray really into sport. Obviously, by its very nature, um, it gave me a hell of a lot of experience in retail, in sales, meeting people. You know, I was in the shop seven days a week. You know, this is 8 a.m. I'd open it and 8 p.m. seven days a week. Like it was frontline sales. That combined with the fact, obviously, because we were selling sports memorabilia, I started to build a network in sport, both with professionals, clubs and sports retailers. Alongside that, I was also working as a, a nightclub promoter. So again, my network was really turbocharged. We, we, we ran a promotions business that had 22 parties a week on in London. And, you know, they were what you'd call the high-end nightclubs. And, you know, we would basically have Premier League footballers coming down every single night. We got to know them. And so that in itself then was building a network. So already, you know, by the age of 30, I had the legal qualification, a very good contacts in with footballers and not only with footballers, but trusted because I was, I was basically looking after them in their, their, this is the days of the sort of news, the world and selling stories were at their peak and phone tapping. And so I wasn't only looking after guys, I was looking after them when they were at their most vulnerable, i.e. drunk and a night out. So, and we never had any problems with our guy, you know, our, our events. So that really put me into the world of footballers and professional sportsmen obviously the retail side of it. So I was meeting brands and rights holders through the, the memorabilia business. Um, and that, that sort of, I guess the, the incessant nature of that. So you're thinking in the evenings, I'm in nightclubs during the day I'm in a shop, it, it, you know, this is seven days a week. This isn't um, a nine to five experience. This is seven days a week, every day of the year. And it's just on. And I think, that's the other thing where I think I always try and get over to people about when they say, Oh, how did you do this? How do you do that? Repetition and just, you know, dedication and consistency of what you're doing. You know, we're talking about years of doing that. And it's, I think once people trust you in those environments um, that builds a reputation and then off the back of reputation Obviously, the older you get, the more people you, you meet, the smarter you should become. Other opportunities start to fall into place. And that's where, again, the, 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 the becoming an agent, the, the stars aligned with my legal qualifications, my contacts. And again, it all just clicked into place. And so, you know, we're talking 15 years ago now. And this is where, you know, even today, after, you know, having dark horses now and working at BBH Sport before that, there was a sort of this 15 years run of, working in different facets of the sports, sports business world. And to this day, there's people I still work with who I'd have met in a VIP room in a West End nightclub. But I've, I've stayed on that path. And I think, you know, that's the great thing about sport is it is, it is a quite small world. Um, and when you really sort of start getting to the top, it is the same, it's the same faces and group of people that are making a lot of the decisions. Hello, and welcome back to Build the Invisible with me, Daniel G. In addition to sharing insights and lessons on career success, I'm also the founder of a charity fashion brand called 13. At 13shop.co.uk, you can order hoodies, t-shirts, and socks with all proceeds going towards cancer research. 
So not only can you evaluate your personal and professional development with the insights shared on this podcast, but you can also support a great cause with your purchase from 13. Visit 13shop.co.uk today to browse our collection and make a difference. Thank you for supporting Build Invisible and the mission of 13. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And very briefly on the networking stuff, do you, is there, um, and it moves into the next bit to do with sort of habits and, and things that have been useful, because I know you're mm. fascinated as to your 5am starts, which we'll talk about in a second, because I'm mm. definitely not a 5am start. Yeah. Um, do, do you have a way of tracking or um, identifying or maintain, and or maintaining your sort of either your core network of people the people that you will engage with um, on a less regular basis, but would still have those soft um, to medium links with, as we call them, and then your sort of wider groups. Is there a way that you'll constantly be saying, right, I need to speak to such and such in the next week or so, I need to do that. that that's the type of thing that you'll be doing. Or is it more ad hoc, depending on the types of projects or mindset that you have at that particular time? It's really interesting. I think it is... It started off, I mean, blimey, I'm going to show my age now, where, you know, this was being done pre-social media. So I would create, and I've got them all on my desktop, I've got databases of people I've met. You'd be pleased to know, all my, I no longer have business cards, they've all been transferred off the database, <laughs> but I did have a box of business cards. And um, the people even have business cards, I don't think they do anymore, do they? Um, and I used to do a regular mail out to um, massive databases of people. Um, it was a generic one, but I was giving them updates on, on the business. It's like a newsletter really before yeah. newsletters were a thing. Um, but with regards to sort of, I guess now or the last, this last year, it, it just comes so naturally to me. I, it's not in any way, I guess, um, engineered. I suppose I'm a bit of a Luddite. So I've actually adopted you know, technology quite slowly and social media quite slowly. So it's, you know, the more and more I adopt it, the easier it, I mean, it's better, you know, the better I'm better becoming communicating with people and building my network, which is amazing because I've kind of, you know. Um, so, yeah, in answer to your question, it is, it's weirdly just quite natural to me. But I think what I am aware of is um, I just enjoy reaching out to people i enjoy offering my time to people i enjoy i really enjoy putting people together not for any benefit um i actually recently set up a a group on whatsapp that's now migrated onto slack um which it's funny I've, it's called the tribe of mentors i called it and it's a group of 40 people who i guess i've met over the last 12 to 18 months who um i think I know I feel can all benefit from each other's um, experiences. And it's not just, you know, the business of sport. There are um, some very high profile people in there. There's, you know, everything, you know, CEOs, CMOs, there are, there's recovering addicts. There's all sorts of people in there um, who all share the same one passion and that is learning. And that is a, become a really valuable resource to me. And every week the group gets bigger and, you know, and I'll, I'll invite you into it, actually. I'll put you into it straight away. You definitely should be in it. But it's one of those things where it's that for me has become almost a platform that I've created for personal development for people I know that are on the same journey. 
um, is it's, you know, I, I find it very easy to, I mean, this year has been quite tricky, I have to say, obviously during lockdowns, um, I've, I have found it quite challenging with regards to, con, con, you know, keeping up the, the contact. Um, I really enjoy meeting face to face. So, you know, I have been going up to London quite a bit, meeting people, going for walks. Um, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm just a big believer in, in, in talking to people, listening to people. And as you said earlier, um, just offering assistance. Like, you know, as I, I've got a bit of time on my hands at the moment, I actually put into the, into the tribe group uh, on Friday. I said, look, guys, I'm going to just block out Wednesday morning. If anyone wants to any time with me, let me know. Because if it's new business or some advice or this or that, just shout me and I've got time for you. And, you know, and that's, I'm not like saying I'm some oracle that's going to be able to help people, but... I just like helping people out, you know, and I think, I think you're right. What you said about, you know, networking and that sort of thing. It's not, it's not a selfish pursuit. You're not going out there thinking what's in it for me. I think you're going out there thinking, how can I help people? And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned actually in the last few year or so really about giving and putting back like, I've started doing quite a bit for charity, just, you know, again, not strategic, just sort of found myself running a few races here and there for charities and out of the blue and unexpectedly, what has come back from that has been incredible, like on a personal level, but on a business level. And so it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that that is a key point to land actually around networking. It's you've got to go out there with the open mind that you, you're going out to offer your help, services to help people, not vice versa. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot just slightly with something that sprung to mind on the basis of what you've just said, because yeah. one of the bits that I've written in um, in the first draft is all about how I think, uh, you know, people, when, when they're approaching people in the chosen sector or industry that they want to work in, um, sometimes, exactly as you said, are a bit too focused on, please do me a favour. Please give me work experience. Please, you know, give me a job. Please um, offer advice. All of those type of things I can, I can, I completely get. Um, but what I tried to explain as well in my experience and speaking with people like you and others as well is actually it's really important to almost flip the conversation, to flip the conversation to say, look at all this good experience I may or may not have. Yeah. Um, but I don't want you to do me a favor. I want to do you a favor. Yeah. And actually, I've given you and I've given this quite a lot of thought. Let's just say it's, you know, you, Simon, as the sports agent, it might just be, please don't, it's not, can I have work experience? It's, this is a job that I know you might need help with. For example, do yeah. you need me to do this or do that for something? And I'm not, I'm not necessarily projecting, you know, do something for free forever, far be it from it. But how do you solve a problem that the person that you're reaching out to may not even realize needs to be solved? And, yeah. and the simple act of doing that and having a straightforward possibility of saying yes to it rather than providing a problem to the person, which yeah. a lot of the time can be, oh, Christ, how am I going to get this person work experience? How am I going to go through the administration of doing all of these things, yeah. even if I do innately want to help this person? Yeah. I think there's a real mindset flip that could work quite well if more people are thinking along those lines sometimes. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I thought, oh, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're contacting. And I think that's where, 
you have to do your research on who you're speaking to. And, you know, I am an entrepreneur. I am not a guy who will ever be employed again. I am someone who creates things. I enjoy that and I create things for others. And so just by my very nature, I, I really enjoy people reaching out to me um, and I'll always give them a conversation. I'll always try and help. But I think, I think you're right. I think it's, it's the value add. And I think it's, 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 it's trying to get into my mind and try and find out, right, okay, what, do, what you know, does Simon need at his talent business or at Dark Horses or his memorabilia business? Where, where, is, where are the gaps at the moment? You know, memorabilia business, right, it's Christmas. They must be doing something around Christmas. Can I help with that? Dark Horses, you know, Euros next year. Can I do some research around what brands are sponsoring the Euros? That is all, it, it, yeah, if you give it some thought, I think it's, it's and if even if it's just the actual fact you've given it some thought, you're not, you know, I'm not expecting people to land on the answer. Um, I mean, that'd be nice. But it's that, that I think, just taking it that, that extra step. And I think it's that setting yourself apart. Of, and I think that in itself provides an interesting mindset approach to almost problem solving in a way and that those practical um, parts. So, but no, I completely agree. Okay, so this, the, these couple of questions, I think whenever I wrote them in the first place, I think I probably had you in mind when I was... Um, yeah when I was thinking about them, because I think that, you know, this is probably right in your sweet spot. In, yeah. in, so no pressure or anything at all, but. No, but it's uh, really interesting. And maybe now this isn't, this isn't the forum, but it's again, something that I've, that, uh, how are you for time? Are you all right for time? All good. All good. Yeah. Something that's really been, I've been confronted with over the last few months is, it's, and it's been really exciting for me is to, to confront it, is this whole thing around um, sort of hustle porn and, it's quite a lot of people over lockdown. I don't know if you um, have come across Stephen Bartlett, the founder of Social Chain. I haven't, no, no. Look into him. He's a chap called Stephen Bartlett. He's the CEO founder of Social Chain, the agency. He sold it for, I think, 200 million a couple of months ago. And he's got a brilliant podcast called um, uh, the something, the, the something of a CEO. Anyway, um, really good. And he... He, about three months ago, when he sold his business, he checked out there saying, oh, look, you know, for, for the last six years, I've built this business, biggest blah, blah, blah. And I, and I was, I was worshipped for working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And he's like, now his thing is like, I think I got it wrong. I, I don't know if it's right. And he's like, you know, Gary Vee's one of my best friends. And Gary and I talk about it. He's like, you know, I've got this really uncomfortable thing that I've got to get in touch with Gary to tell him to stop you know, glorifying how he acts. And I was like, okay, it's getting quite interesting. And then he's had a few guests on lately who is, 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 it's always um, sort of entrepreneurs. And, and he's had, he had Eddie Heard on yesterday to this morning. <laughs> Fuck me. Eddie's brilliant. I mean, I've always loved Eddie. I've actually got his book here, his new book. And um, it was really interesting because it really made me think like Eddie, I mean, Eddie's like old school as well. So Eddie's talking like, you know, if I if it's a fight on Christmas Day or Christmas to family, I'm going to the fight. She knows that. It's the way I brought up. You know, it's like fucking, it's quite, it's, he's like quite extreme. But it really made me confront like, um, weirdly how, I guess over the last few years, people around me and at the agency have sort of heroed my work ethic and my, my 5am starts. And, you know, and it, I think it really has made me think about, um, and especially during this pandemic and lockdown, um, 
obviously there's this mental health pandemic definitely coming down the line. And I think whether hustle porn has been acceptable this year because, you know. I should say, when you say hustle porn, people might not quite understand yeah. that actual concept. You're effectively saying work as hard as you can constantly and keep grinding basically because hard work will out full stop. Yeah. Yeah, so just grind, 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 non-stop, hard work, seven days a week, work before everything. Um, and I think it's really interesting how now um, I, I, I've had a really nice period of time over the last three or four months just confronted with, you know, my brand as a person is very much based on that. And I think um, I've had to really face up to it. You know, is that the best way for for me next year to carry on and and that you know i am i have i am made some tweaks so i think if you you know anyway i gave up drinking alcohol i i made some changes anyway so i was never burning the candle at both ends as such but i think what's been quite exciting is that you know as we will be able to work from home more and commutes have gone and international travel will be reduced with work and i think actually it lends itself to be have a bit more time back and it's up to us how we use that time, you know, and I think for me personally, you know, as we'll come on to, I still get up at five, but now what I'm doing is I'm, I've got a really nice routine that involves, you know, my family more involves walking, not just running and beasting in the gym it involves taking a, the new dog for a walk. Like there's things that have been introduced by life that actually will enable me to have a more fulfilled life and more rounded life. And, you know, when I was living in central London, it was on every day, bang, bang, bang. So, and I think that that's, you know, something that I think everyone needs to sort of have an honest conversation with themselves around is um, the, the cult of hustle is quite an interesting one. Um, and it has certainly been, there's some, you know, well-known people out there who talk about it a lot, but I think people really need to, if they, if they sign up to the cult of hustle, they really need to incorporate some well-being practices into it or alongside it, or I think it ends quite badly for them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I had an epiphany about a couple of, about a couple of months ago um, where it wasn't even me. I was, I was speaking to my tennis coach. I played a lot of tennis when I was younger, loved it, really enjoyed it, gave it up, but didn't, you know, it was never going to be a pro far from it. But, um, and I haven't really played that much apart from when I go on holiday since. And since lockdown started, obviously, and then out of lockdown, you know, um, tennis was one of the first things that you could sort of yeah. do with people, et cetera. So I was like, right, I'm just going to start playing tennis a couple of times a week whenever I could because we're at home and doing. And the tennis coach said to me about a month or so ago, he's like, Dan, I know you're obviously you're a hard worker, you're in the office a lot, or the rest of it. Your routine has been so ingrained over yeah. such a long period of time. Who would have imagined that at 1.30 on a Wednesday afternoon for the last two and a half months, you'd be playing tennis every week? Yeah. And I was like, it really sort of struck a chord like because in my former life as a, a sports lawyer, in that routine of being in the office every day, pretty nonstop, um, my illusion of my life, not the illusion of life, but the routine was so ingrained yeah. that it wouldn't have even cognitively entered my brain to be like oh why why can't i do this every week mm. but i think the journey probably started for both of us um assuming or hoping expecting that that would be the case and i think it's 
it's really interesting how your 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 normality so you, you know when you're you know you come out of uni and you think well, I'll be a lawyer oh yeah I'll go on these lovely holidays each year I'll get home for dinner with the family nice car nice house with stuff and then you sort of have all these metrics and then you sort of get to a certain age and you, you sort of, no, 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 next year I'll do that. You know, next year I'll do that. And next year I'll do that. And then suddenly you look around and you're like, wow, okay, I'm 44. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that again, having this um, pandemic, obviously it's been horrific for everyone. Um, but I do think it has shaken the system up for enough people to, to look at their, their, their behaviors, their routines, their daily practices. And it, a lot of people, including me, needed the foundation shook because otherwise I was so, I didn't want to change things because they'd worked for me. They'd worked for me because they'd given me everything I've ever wanted. But, you know, if you're really honest with yourself, you are still caught up in that sort of, you know, hamster wheel of the, whereas actually, you know, I, came out of the hamster wheel, stopped. And as I said earlier, I'm now, I've reassessed. I'm going to climb back into a hamster wheel, which is a different hamster wheel that I think I'm going to be controlling more. Yeah. Well, then tell me then if it's possible on, on those sort of recalibrated productive habits or routines or otherwise, what do you find, what do you find useful? I was chatting to um, another interviewee, um, um, great sports writer, Gab Marcotti, that you, you obviously uh, know. Yeah. And Gab was explaining that he's really good, for example, creatively first thing in the morning and then quite late at night, for example. And yeah. that Pink, I remember, has written a book called <clears throat> When, I think it is, which talks about sort of body clocks, yeah. general um, rhythms of creativity and administration and all the different times of the day that benefit. Obviously, that might just be one thing, but I know, for example, you're a big proponent of having you know, the 5 a.m. club and yeah. having that time, especially in the mornings, it'd be just great to maybe hear that sort of routine or how that's um, sort of yeah. evolved as well. Yeah. And I think that, the, the, you know, getting up early, um, I know I never was a sort of late, you know, sleeper, I guess, but I sort of probably four years ago started just getting up at 5am every morning. Um, weekends out of Casey line to half five this year, it, you know, it's been a bit up and down, but I'm back to sort of 5am now. And I think again, it's not, I find that, you know, obviously having my, my three-year-old son in the house, he usually wakes at seven. So it's even more important now to have that, um, that time to myself in the morning because I want to shape the day for me. I don't want the day to attack me. And I think, I, and again, this is all personal preferences, but if I, I know that if I was in bed at seven and Ralph would come in and wake me up, that is Ralph time. Then it's kind of, it, I, I have to be there for him and look after everything, all his needs and what I need to do to set me up for day isn't going to happen. So, you know, I'm now, I mean, slightly JJ actually, because he's got a puppy. So the puppies cause all sorts of chaos. Cause now I have to think about a puppy at 5am, but anyway, um, so no, we go, I go downstairs and feed the puppy. Um, which is great. And then uh, we, yeah, I, 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 I've got a number of books on the go, usually two or three books on the go. I usually sit down at this desk. Um, I've got a lovely view of the South Downs. Obviously the, the, it's still dark. It's actually dark now, um, but I get to watch the sunrise. I have a blank piece of paper. I just put down my thoughts for the day. I'll then write out a, a to-do list for the day. 
this sounds really neurotic, but I've got a chart over here with all my goals um, that are written out there. And I just make sure that I'm very clear of, you know, my monthly goals, my daily goals. Uh, I make sure they're aligned. I'll clearly write out what, what time my calls are, what time I'm eating. Um, and so that's my day. Um, and I'm very lucky I've got a gym out in the barn at the back. So I'll then go and work out for an hour. Um, I come back, eat, and that's usually about five to seven. I start to hear little feet. <laughs> and then the day starts. And so I've had two hours of brain dump, goal setting, planning the day, physical exercise, meal. I'm now ready to, to, for the day. What I don't do is I don't um, put the news on. Occasionally I'll look at social media and I'll, and I'll, I'll answer, you know, that, that's, I'm not sort of never, no, no inputs. Like I'll occasionally look at my phone, you know, but I certainly don't put the news on. And this year, especially I've just been like no news. I might put a bit of history on to get me in the mood. Um, but it's, yeah, I try and limit the inputs at that time because again, it's just it's shaping how I feel about the day. And I think when I've done that, um, I feel ready for what comes at me throughout the day. Um, but yeah, listen, it's not, yeah. It's a nice way for me to start the day. And I, and I appreciate because it it's funny because I know your next question will be, what time do you go to bed? <laughs> yeah, I go to bed early. And so my wife's like, we, we, I'm at nine o'clock, I'm on the sofa, like falling asleep. And so, yeah, we are a bit like ships passing in the night, myself and my wife. But it, it, it works quite well. And um, yeah, again, it's one of those things I've actually been looking at in the last couple of months as to, right, does this need to change? And, and where I've landed on is it, it doesn't need to change because actually um, I can finish, finish work earlier now. So I can get, tend to get everything done by five o'clock, um, which means I can sit down with my son, he gave me supper. And then, you know, I've still got, then got three hours with my son and my wife. So it, yeah, it, it works for me. Obviously when, if we come out of this sort of the way of the world and we are all back in the office every day a week, because I now live out of London, it will have to be reassessed because, you know, I've got factor in the commute. But no, at the moment, it works pretty well for me. Small side question, which is when you were making what is obviously quite a big habit change or particular habits that you are looking to try and incorporate, um, do you think uh, you being a certain type of character aids or hinders those adoption techniques, if that's the right way of saying it? So, you know, part of my part of my thinking from reading lots about habits and all the rest of it is you know motivation can wane quite quickly in particular ways and then you sort of go in that vicious circle of oh it's me that's rubbish and you know without uh, and therefore I'm a failure and I can't make these changes and I, I can't do the right things and you sort of go into that sort of vicious circle um do, do you do you subscribe to the whole actually, you know, motivation in itself can take you as far as it needs to go? Or do you actually sometimes sort of depersonalize it and say, I just need to do the small things that regardless if it's me or regardless of it's the, the thing that I want to change? I, I think it all just boils back to a few things. I think firstly, you've got to really ask yourself what you're trying to achieve and what your goals are. Like where, where, where do you want to get to? Like where, 
what is the plan? Like the five, the, you know, the five o'clock in the morning thing, um, you know, when we were back in the old world, um, that would enable me to start work at 7.30. And so I'd be working from 7.30, which would mean that by, you know, 10 a.m., when a lot of people start work, I've done two and a half hours work a day. More Like that is, you compound that over a year, the compounding of that is an extra five weeks work. And so you add that up over 10 years. Like this is, this is what it is. It's about compounding these small little changes. I think you've got to really ask people how much they want something. And that's a really hard question because you have to, once you really dig into that, you then have to explain and, and understand that you have to make sacrifices. And, you know, from the age of 25, say, you know, whether it was running a shop seven days a week and then being a nightclub promoter on top of that four or five nights a week and then becoming an agent and, and doing all these things, a lot of sacrifice were made. And I think it's, you know, talking about what people don't see. I know you like um, read a lot of Matthew Side's books. It's kind of that that's fine. And it's people don't see a lot of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and, it's only having conversations like this where, you know, if I, I you know, say to people from the age of probably, oh, even at uni, to be honest, like at uni, I was certainly um, very social, but, I, you know, I was always in the library. If anyone wanted to find me, I'd be in the library. And that, that, was, a, that was a joke. And that, that was a running joke at my uni, where Simon? I was in the library. And, and that's kind of where it started. And I think even when I was at uni and I'd go back to my parents in the holidays, I'd be studying every day, you know, every day. And as I got into sort of adult life and professional life, um, you know, I made the commitment from probably mid 20s, yeah, my mid 20s, I decided that for the first four months of every year, I would stop drinking alcohol. And it was a test, you know, I didn't have a problem with alcohol. Um, it was like, right, okay, Jan 1st, it's on. And, and I would do that until May. And then I'd go on a summer holiday with the lads. And, you know, I just found that those first four months of the year, I would get so far ahead by just taking alcohol out. And this is bear in mind, you know, in the 20s, when you're probably going out three nights a week. I just got so much done that, you know, lo and behold, I got to age sort of 37, 38. And I thought, actually, let's take it out completely. And so there are all these little small sacrifices that I think, that I know I made. Um, and people have to be really honest to themselves as to how much they want, what they want. And you know, the, the, again, going back to goal setting, all of this, you need goals. Like you cannot be motivated unless you have clear goals. And I don't just mean life goals. I mean, daily goals, weekly goals, monthly goals. And I've got them all written out around me and, you know, some days, you know, there might not be much on and it could be Tesco, cut the grass, dog for a walk, hour in the gym. They're my goals. And by ticking them off, I get a sense of satisfaction and I keep momentum up. And I think, again, in all of this, momentum is key. Like, if you can get momentum in any aspect of your life, that's when progress happens. And that, that, that's, you know, I've said it before. You know, that's when the good stuff happens. When you start making progress that and momentum turns up, you, you know, you're invincible. 
I found it fascinating also when you're talking about sort of making sacrifices and stuff when, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, I want to harness this passion for X, whatever X necessarily is. Um, but the, and I didn't know it until very recently with one of the books, Grit, that I really enjoy from Angela. Yeah, really it, yeah. And she, she explained it was really late on in the book in answering one of the questions from someone else, which was that the, the Latin um, core of passion is actually to suffer. Yeah. And I just found that like really fascinating is that everyone's going, I'm so passionate about this or I'm so passionate about that. <laughs> that if I think if they understood what maybe passion was a bit more or used the, the handle maybe slightly differently, yeah. that actually in saying that they're passionate, they yeah. understand actually what is needed in order to, in, um, to embrace that passion, which is, you know, that invisible suffering in yeah. not, not in a terribly harsh masochistic way, but in a, very difficult, enduring way. But that, that's, again, like, I've done it so much now. Getting up at 5am 5, 5 is a habit. I don't, I don't think I probably enjoyed it at the start. I enjoyed it because it's difficult. You know, like, for me today, leg, it was leg day in the gym. I was really excited about leg day because it's the hardest day. I, I'm just quite drawn to that challenge and, I guess, the adversity in those situations that I know that once you get through them... The rest is plain sailing. I think you're aware that I, um, I had mental health problems when I left the legal profession. It was something that, you know, for six months I wasn't very well. I was in a private hospital as a day patient. And what that gave me was incredible resilience because from after that, there was no lower point. I hit the rock bottom. And even today, like, things can happen, you know, this summer, last summer, they'll happen again in the future. But... I have the resilience and I'm not, you know, I've, I know what it's like to, to, to be at the bottom. So for me, it's all upside now. It's all up. And I think almost, again, you've got to be careful what I say here, but not artificially creating the pain around adversity, but people, you know, people jump in a cold shower first thing in the day because they like to do something hard in the morning. I think there's a, there's a really good commencement speech, isn't there, by the US Marine commander who talks about making a bed in the morning. Um, brilliant. Like, do the hardest things. As soon as you wake up, do things you don't want to do because the rest of the day is then just plain sailing. And I'm a massive, massive advocate of that. But again, I completely appreciate that it's not for everyone. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people actually, a lot of my friends at the moment are adopting the cold shower in the morning. And a lot of them are just, just saying how it's changing their, their days, you know, by doing that, just the obviously there's a, there's a chemical impact as well but by just doing that in the morning nothing else phases in the rest of the day I, I i do the cold shower thing uh cold bath thing but that's after exercise because i know how bad my hamstrings are correct 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 so that's usually in the evenings which is fine in the summer when you're usually quite warm but yeah. and when i'm starting to play a bit 11 aside football on a yeah. Sunday morning after um, after it's minus three degrees outside and then going into a cold bath is not is not my optimal idea. But. My good friend Jamie Peacock, who obviously is captain Great Britain Rugby League and England and you know highly decorated rugby league player, he talks about you know every night when he was playing he used to have an ice bath every single night um, and that was for a decade. He'd also cold showers in the morning. He'd also um, have broccoli for breakfast. Like you just do stuff that people will be like, why? Like we did it because it was uncomfortable. Mm. He also has a, you know, he started a ritual of going for a 15 mile run every Christmas day morning. And 
funny enough, I, I do that as well, but I didn't, uh, I'll go for run Christmas morning. And first for my family, they were just like, what? And, but I always used to do it because I knew no one else would be doing it. And Jamie was like the same, even though he's an elite sportsman, I was doing the same as him. But he was like, I know that my competition aren't doing this. And that makes me feel good. And that gives me confidence. And yeah, I guess that, that sort of thing. Um, oh, it's funny, just going back to the sacrifice point, something I just remembered that, you know, I, I, in my probably the last 15 years, I haven't been out on New Year's Eve. Now that sounds like really boring and really this and really that. But for me, I could ever think, I can never think of anything worse than waking up on New Year's Day. I remember obviously used to go on New Year's Eve loads and wake up and have a two day hangover. The last 15 years, I've not been out on New Year's Eve and I've gone to bed at nine o'clock and I've woken up probably at five or six and absolutely savaged myself with exercise read something, written something down. And that for me is, you know, that is sacrifice, but that is also setting up the year how I want to carry on. Like I couldn't imagine now waking up on New Year's Day with a hangover. And again, it's not, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying for me personally, it, that that's just not how I operate. It's interesting, yeah, about the sacrifice stuff. So I've, I've more or less gone vegan inside the last, Brilliant. I went vegetarian inside the last three years. And I'm now being vegan in the last about year or so. Um, yeah. And I've sometimes found that a little bit of a challenge because I do love a bit of dairy milk. I had loved yeah. dairy milk every now and then. But yeah, I, 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 I understand. Yeah, I understand the whole point of it's basically what works for you. And then yeah. not only what works for you is what energizes you to retain that positivity of, um, of how it is. And I think it's stimulating adversity. I think it's, as I said, you know, in life, we unfortunately will have lots of adversity come our way that we can do nothing about and, and by its very nature takes us by surprise. But I think the more that you've actually artificially stimulated along the way or created, when those big sucker punches come, you are, you're better still to deal with it and you'll react in a better way and be able to, to control it. And I think, you know, whether that's, you know, running up the hill behind my house with a weight pack on or 5am or not drinking or running 75 miles or whatever it is. I don't have to do any of that. I want to do that because it's, I think it's better equipping me for life. One of my old clients, Martin O'Fire, um, when he finished playing, he always spoke about retaining, and he still does, being fit for life. And I always used to think, what do you mean by being fit for life? And he would, his diet is incredible. His training is incredible still. And it's like he trains every morning. And I, and I used to think, why is he still training so much? He's training more now than he's really playing. He's like, man, I need to be fit for life. Like, and what he means by that is you just don't know what life's going to throw at you. And I think the, the more you are controlled of your emotions, um, you're in physical health, you're in good shape, the better you are going to be able to combat what comes at you. I think you've probably answered my last question, um, <laughs> but I'm going to just say it anyway. Yeah. I know you probably put it out there, which was, um, I actually took this from Tim Ferriss, um, who I'm sure you've heard of as well. Um, he asked a load of um, relatively influential people about um, a number of questions. I think it was 13 questions. And one of the last uh, questions yeah, he asked. There you go. The tribe of mentors. Or the, the, correct, correct, yeah. correct, correct. <laughs> Got it up there. And some of the questions are sort of, um, yeah, um, diplomatically um yeah sourced from some of those um questions itself but one of the questions that he posed which i really enjoyed which was if you had a massive billboard where you could say anything to inspire others um 
what would it say? I'm not sure if that's actually Martin O'Fire's bit about attacking every day and being fit for, for life or whether there's something a little bit more so than that. Um, it's funny, I did think about this question a lot. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm reading Tim Press's book. It was, yeah, I, I, can I have two, please? I want two. I will, I will allow you to. Both on Sunset Boulevard. So um, I think the first one will be you need to make sacrifices. That is just that, you know, it's not going to just come to you without making wholesale regular change in your life. And I think the second one is obvious, but I think people need to be reminded this regularly is, you know, if you work hard, amazing things will happen because I'm a big believer in the law of attraction and I'm a big believer in, in habits, in repetition and in compounding. And I think, working hard consistently you can't fail it will happen but it's at what point you stop and the answer is you don't stop and again going back to that point about you know sometimes you have to stop because you might not be quite right and i'm not saying you know but what i what i believe in is if you you keep hammering away you will if you've got a goal you keep hammering away to it you will get to your goal love it and I really like actually that point. I'm going to start asking people about where the billboard should be. I think. That <laughs> well, no, no, I don't want to on sunset. I think it's just the most famous place for a billboard. No, I think that says a lot about you as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. well, at least some people see it, I guess. Um, All right, let me. Well, Simon, I'm going to I'm going to end the uh, the chat now. Thank you so much for yeah for taking the time that. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Any time. And I'm going to add you to this group now. I've got your number. I'll add you to it. There'll be no turning back once you're in this group, WhatsApp group. You're starving cold showers and everything. Thanks for listening to another episode of Build the Invisible with me, Daniel G. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and took away some valuable insights and lessons. If you'd like to learn more about the strategies and mindset discussed on the show, be sure to check out the book, my book, Build the Invisible, and the accompanying BTI journal, both available at www buildtheinvisible.com. We also encourage you to leave us a review and subscribe to keep up to date on future episodes. Thanks for listening.